Hello, welcome to Advancing Agriculture, legal insight for the ag finance industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. In this episode, we are starting a two-part series on security interests in agricultural lending and some of the issues a creditor may face in these areas. In this first of two installments, we will provide a summary on Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code, which provides guidance on the creation and enforceability of security interests in personal property and fixtures, among other things. This is Elizabeth Benefield, and after 10 years of serving in-house counsel with farm credit institutions, I have joined Hush Blackwell, where we consistently work with agricultural finance clients. I'm here today with my colleague, Stephanie Kaiser. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm Stephanie Kaiser, and I'm a partner here at Hush Blackwell. I've been practicing law for going on 22 years, and I have served as in-house general counsel to a large lending institution and have served as outside general counsel for the better part of my career for a number of businesses. And the issues we're going to discuss today are some of those issues that Elizabeth and I commonly face in representing secured creditors. To get started, how does a creditor create an enforceable security interest in collateral under Article 9? Thanks, Elizabeth. With regard to Article 9, we're going to use that term today. So before I kind of start delving into how a creditor creates that enforceable security interest that's so important, I want to briefly state what Article 9 is for people who don't maybe use that term every day to describe what we're going to be discussing. So Article 9 is a provision of state law. Uh, All 50 states have some version of this. And generally speaking, the Uniform Commercial Code with regard to Article 9 type issues, secured credit and collateral, for example, those are generally going to be pretty consistent across 50 states. There are some amendments that get made from time to time, and there are some amendments that are considered non-uniform. Texas, for example, has a couple of non-uniform amendments. So don't just assume that they're all the same. If you're operating in multiple states, do make sure you have a way to compare the changes. And there are easy resources available to everybody online where you can compare, you know, side by side. Of course, you want to make sure that they're, uh, you know, valid with your lawyer too. make sure your lawyer agrees with those. But having said that, there are some resources you want to be mindful of. So when we talk about Article 9, it's this body of law uh, that all states will have and it's approved form for that state that addresses how a secured creditor can get a security interest in certain kinds of collateral. And so in order for a secured creditor to benefit from that right and the remedies under Article 9, that secured creditor must be sure they do three things. Number one, that they have a security interest uh, that's been created in its favor. Number two, the security interest must attach to the collateral. And this is what allows a secured creditor to enforce its rights in the collateral against the debtor, the person giving them that security interest, for example. And third, the attached interest has to be properly perfected. And perfection is what allows the secured creditor to enforce its rights against the debtor and collateral with regard to third parties. So attachments between secured creditor and the debtor and perfection is really important for uh, enforcing your rights in the collateral as against the debtor and, of course, third parties. Generally speaking, there are three requirements that need to be met in order for secured creditor security interest to attach to the property being pledged. Number one, the debtor has to have rights in the property being pledged as collateral or the power to convey such rights. Number two, value has to be given, consideration. And number three, the debtor has to sign a security agreement, a written instrument that sufficiently describes the collateral. And when I say that phrase, sufficiently describes the collateral, I'm emphasizing that for a reason. And basically, your interest largely hinges as a secured creditor on the sufficiency of your description. A lot of states will have case law that tell you, tells you under that particular state's law what is and is not sufficient. But generally speaking, in my experience, things like all debtors' property um, or all personal property or all contracts, those may or may not be sufficient and largely probably won't be sufficient under a particular, uh, particular state's law. 
with regard to a sufficient description, meaning if you just put down all debtor's property, you may not have an enforceable interest in that particular collateral that you intended to take. So for me, one thing that I try to do whenever I'm working on these sorts of things is, of course, satisfy the law of that state, making sure I've given a sufficient description. And oftentimes when I'm drafting these things myself, I will say, for example, um, uh, all farm products, including but not limited to all cattle and you know other livestock, or I'll say all cattle, horses, and other livestock, I will give those sorts of broad descriptions as well as examples of the ones that are most critical, especially if I've done an inspection of those, I've got a collateral evaluation of those properties. I want to make sure it matters. Likewise, if there's certain pieces of property or equipment, uh, I want to make sure I've identified the serial number of that equipment, of course, and also noted if, if assuming you have an interest in these things, replacements and things like that, and, and maybe accessories to that particular property. So you'll say all equipment, including not limited to the John Deere tractor bearing serial number, blah, 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 um, and any replacements, recessions, et cetera. So consider those things maybe when you're drafting to see what makes uh, makes sense under your particular set of circumstances to make sure you're sufficient, both in a general sense, as well as a specific sense under your particular state's law. So as part of that, I guess, Elizabeth, can you describe some of the ways a creditor can perfect its security interest? Sure. So first, Stephanie, I want to start with why perfection is important, because as you mentioned, when the creditor enters into the security agreement with the debtor, it already provides the creditor rights against that debtor. But it's the perfection of the lien that actually provides the creditor rights against other creditors by putting other parties on notice of the creditor's lien. And that's going to include both secured and unsecured creditors. Generally, a secured creditor may perfect its security interest in certain property made subject to Article 9 by one of four main methods of perfection. And sometimes these methods of perfection are specific to the type of collateral. Filing a UCC-1, which is also known as a financing statement with regard to the collateral, is going to be the main one. Um, next is possession of the collateral. So sometimes that's the only method, the example of cash, and sometimes that's an alternative method as well for instruments and goods. Control of the collateral is next. Again, sometimes that's the only method, for example, deposit a Sometimes it's an alternative method. So we can use those for certificated or uncertificated securities or security accounts and commodity accounts as well. And finally, we have automatic perfection. So sometimes we have things like a PMSI, which is a purchase money security interest in consumer goods or certain cash proceeds where that perfection will automatically occur. Depending upon the type of collateral, there may be only one method of perfection applicable. And some types of perfection may allow for better priority over other creditors when more than one method of perfection applies. Security interests in most collateral may be perfected by filing a properly completed financing statement or the UCC-1 in the appropriate office. And we'll talk about appropriate office and where that is later. For the financing statement to be sufficient, it has to include a minimum of the following items. So first of all, it has to provide the name of the debtor which is usually going to be a grantor of the collateral that may or may not be the same person as your borrower, but that will be the owner of the collateral being given under the security agreement. Second has to provide the name of the secured party or the representative of the secured party. And finally has to indicate the collateral covered by the financing statement. So that's going to be those descriptions that Stephanie was just talking about a little bit. The financing statement must also satisfy other Article 9 requirements. So, for example, the mailing address of the secured creditor has to be included and mailing address and type of the debtor as well. The UCC record is only an indicator that a security interest may exist. It's not the lien in and of itself. So the financing statement that's filed to perfect a security interest is simply intended to alert third parties of the claimed security interest so that other secured parties can protect themselves or react accordingly. 
The reason I mentioned that is because underlying documentation is still very important. So Stephanie, there's other items that you talked about a minute ago with the attachment and things like that are just as important as getting the perfection out there. Um, the security agreement, the other elements like proper attachments still required along with filing of the UCC-1. In addition to these proper elements, there are going to be steps that a creditor may need to make before taking steps to perfect that security interest. So Stephanie, for example, I mean, do you want to let you know, give us some information about choice of law or maybe how to determine the appropriate office for filing? Sure. And, and before I get into that really quickly, I think you're, we're using the term UCC1 and financing statements. For those of you who don't deal with this terminology every day, I think it might be a little important for us to kind of, you know, maybe expand that just a bit. So when we say financing statement, that's usually going to be a UCC1. There are other types of financing statements like the continuation statement. That's the continuation of that UCC1, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And there's also like amendments to those. So, you know, don't limit your thinking when we say UCC1 or financing statements just to that initial UCC1. There can be other types of forms that are relatedly filed that do the same thing, like an amendment or a continuation that may have other numbers in your states or may require a separate form, for example. So just wanted to point that out. Sorry about that, Elizabeth. Yeah. So the choice of law does play a large role among others. It helps a creditor determine whether it has a perfected security interest and the priority of that interest, which is obviously really important. Generally, the local law of where the debtor, the grantor, I'm going to call, or pledgeor under certain circumstances, is where they're located will determine perfection as well as priority. That's, that's often the case. Where the debtor is located is based on the type of person involved. And when I say the word person, I mean individual or entity. Um, and of course, we'll talk about trust too. So first of all, I'm going to talk about registered organizations. A registered organization is deemed located in its state of organization, like if you have a limited liability company and it's formed in the state of Delaware, that's going to be where it's deemed located, for example. A non-registered organization is deemed located where its place of business is located, or its chief executive office is located. And this is for organizations that have like, for example, more than one place of business too. An individual is deemed located in the location of its principal residence and a foreign debtor is deemed located in the District of Columbia as a general matter. There can be some variations in state law and depending upon what it is or who it is, who's that foreign person, that foreign debtor, that can, that can vary. And there are exceptions. Uh, the famous lawyer phrase, it depends, does apply to this sort of analysis as well. That's why we want to emphasize generally. And so you always want to check your state's laws and check your particular circumstances to be sure you're perfecting uh, based upon the proper location of the debtor at hand. So if a security interest is perfected, for example, too, by possession, then the local law of the jurisdiction where the collateral is located governs that perfection. With regard to deposit accounts, the local law of the jurisdiction of the depository bank governs perfection in the absence of an agreement between the parties. So I always tell people, you know, there's there's these form documents uh, often that people deal with all the time, but there really is meaning behind a lot of those words. Like in the security agreement, for example, it may state, or in the deposit control agreement, excuse me, that's more important here, it may state where uh, the deposit account is deemed to be located. So that could be really important for your purposes, depending upon your circumstances and your transaction. So as for priority between two creditors, a secured creditor will have priority over an unsecured creditor. The first security interest to attach between two unsecured creditors will have priority. And the first to file or perfect between two secured creditors will have priority as a general measure. But a better method of perfection may determine priority, even if that method was not the first to perfect. So you've got to keep not only first to file, for example, but also best method of perfection in mind when you determine a priority between persons. 
It is for at least this reason that creditors should perfect by the best method possible and utilize, if they can, more than one method of perfection whenever they can. So for me, I'm a very visual person when I practice law and just generally when I when I work through some of these things mentally, I have a chart. And if you don't have one, get one. And there's a lot of you know charts available out there, but make sure it's specific to your particular state. Because even though, as we mentioned, Article 9 is generally going to be consistent across most states, there can be variations, especially in Article 9 for lots of reasons, some of which we'll talk about in our next installment. But for me, I have a chart and I have it specific to the states in which I'm operating, which will tell me how do I perfect, you know, a security interest in accounts, general intangibles, payment intangibles, instruments, goods, negotiable documents, all of those things. And, and my chart will generally say whether it's filing uh, uh, perfections by filing a financing statement, whether perfection is by possession and whether perfection is by control and or any number of those. And of course, you want to put a little asterisk next to the best means of perfection with regard to that particular collateral. So if you don't have that sort of instrument or that sort of device readily available, do create that tool for yourself to make it a little bit easier at first blush and have it updated from time to time. So outside of all of this, though, there are laws or considerations relating to certain kinds of collateral that can come into play and take priority even over a properly perfected security interest under Article 9. For example, an agricultural lien, quote unquote, under Article 9 may arise by operation of law. It does not require an agreement between the parties and may not depend upon the debtor's possession of the property itself, which kind of flies in the face of a lot of what we're talking about as general measures. And so by that example, to perfect an agricultural lien, a secured creditor must satisfy the requirements for perfecting a security interest under Article 9, and Article 9 generally determines the priority of those liens. And there are also additional provisions you might have to consider under your state's law. So, for example, farm products. So, while farm products are located in a jurisdiction, the local law of that jurisdiction governs perfection, the effect of perfection or non-perfection, and the priority of an agricultural lien on the farm products at hand. So, farm products and certain agricultural products can get special treatment under Article 9 and other laws. And again, we'll talk about some of those depths in our next podcast because that does get pretty deep on some of those issues and is very statutorily specific and something we obviously want to know. But by way of example here in Texas, there are a number of statutory liens um, relating to agriculture that a creditor has to keep in mind to perfect an interest and or maintain priority in its interest if that's the collateral it's taking in exchange for a security of a loan. Those statutes include like liens for stable keepers, garagemen, pasturers, cotton generers, stock breeders, oh gosh, uh, liens under the property code that arise, um, liens for agricultural chemical and seed under the Texas Agricultural Code, and liens for animal feed under the Texas Agricultural Code. So, and these things, again, can arise by operational law or by just general statute um, and may be un unknown to the secured creditor at the time they take that initial interest. So, just something to kind of keep in mind, especially if you have agricultural property securing your loan, be mindful of the other laws that could come into play in addition to Article 9 to make sure you have the best method of perfection, you're doing what you can to protect yourself. And that's one of the reasons why we'll take some extra time on those topics in our next podcast. So part of this discussion, obviously, Elizabeth, should necessarily involve limits on how long a financing statement lasts. We've talked about generally financing statements, one of the main methods often for perfecting um, a security interest in particular collateral. Can you tell us how long those financing statements or UCC1 filings last? Sure, Stephanie. As a general matter, a financing statement or the UCC1 lapses after five years from the original filing date, but it may be continued by filing a continuation statement or the UCC3 
no more than six months prior to the five-year anniversary of the UCC-1 filing, so the initial financing statement, or the five-year anniversary of any UCC-3 filed to continue the financing statement. These can be continued indefinitely so long as the borrower is still indebted to the creditor, and so those can go on as long as they need to. Um, in the event of a bankruptcy, I like to remind people, you know, to always say you can continue that without violating the automatic stay and you should continue. So even if that debtor has filed bankruptcy, you'll want to make sure you continue to file your um, continuation on the anniversary. Uh, some of the financing statements are effective for more than five years. That's very specific to certain things, so such as the public finance of manufactured home transactions or transmitting utility debtors and as extracted collateral or timber to be cut. So there are occasions where those will be longer than that five-year term. I always like to remind everybody, if you have a lapse in continuation of the filing, that cannot be corrected. So if you forgot to do your continuation before you got past your five-year anniversary, the only way to correct that would be filing a new UCC-1 or the new financing statement. Um, even if you miss it by a day, that, that's kind of an uncorrectable error. To file a financing statement, you need to have the legal name and mailing address of the debtor. That seems to be easy enough when you think about it, but that can be very complicated depending on marital status or religious status or government issued IDs and things like that. Most states have taken the position that the um, debtor, if they are an individual, their name will be as it's shown on an a non-expired driver's license. Um, so sometimes you'll run across, you know, a person doesn't have a driver's license or their driver's license is expired. So Definitely check the state law in your jurisdiction as to what your options are there, but that will be the main thing for an individual is to have that name. Um, you might come across some challenges, for example, spouses. Again, you'll want to come your state, but absent an agreement regarding a sole or separate property, personal property can be considered marital property, and so you may need to include spouses as debtors in both security agreements and the financing statements. Um, you might often have a debtor who's in the process of relocating, so they're moving from one state to another, and there might be some challenges around that as far as filing as well. Challenges that didn't continue when you have things that are non-titled, so you're dealing with a lot of equipment or something like that, you don't have a bill of sale, there's challenges regarding who is the owner of that collateral. So who is the debtor that I need to put on that financing statement? Um, there's no harm if you include additional parties that may be the owner if you can't determine that easily. And then we always say watch out for movement of collateral because people have operations in more than one state and a lot of equipment and livestock can be mobile. And so those things need to be considered as well. So in addition to all of these challenges that arise as part of the loan closing, the creditor also has to be concerned about post-closing changes because any lack of knowledge of something that changed is not going to be an excuse for non-compliance with filing a correction to that UCC-1 or the financing statement. The courts have been very strict and unforgiving to the secured party if they haven't taken action that they needed to within the necessary time frame. As a result, there are risks for being off on the name or not stating it correctly or for not changing the name when something happens after filing. So Stephanie, what do you think some of the um, kinds of issues the creditors are facing there? Oh gosh, so a couple of things when you were kind of mentioning uh, in the last few moments, um, the concerns and some of the things to kind of keep in mind that jumped out at me. One, you're right about the automatic stay, and it's generally not a violation of the automatic stay to continue a financing statement if necessary to maintain that existed as of the time of the filing. Compare that to you know filing a brand new financing statement. Let's say you messed up and filed it incorrectly all along for all these years or whatever period of time is applicable. And then down the road, you're like, oh my gosh, they filed for bankruptcy. I got the name wrong. I'm going to go ahead and, and file a correct one. That would be a violation of the automatic stay. But to continue what has existed in its current form is not. 
for me personally, even if it's not legally required, I always like to reach out to debtors counsel and just give them a heads up that, by the way, we have an existing UCC. It's attached to my proof of claim or here it is. I'm going to continue it to satisfy state law. Let me know if you have any issue. And I know a lot of people may not want to take that kind of a permission approach. I do because I'm sort of the the person who no surprises. And if someone is either non-conversant in bankruptcy law or has some weird concern, I want to know about it before they file some sort of motion uh, for sanctions against me or motion for contempt for violating the automatic stay. So that's just sort of my preference and practice tip that I have. But then also one of the things that you were mentioning about, you know, lack of knowledge obviously doesn't save you uh, if, if the debtor moves. And so this, again, may not resolve that hole that can be created. But generally speaking, check your forms if you're a secured creditor and see if there is a provision in there that, that requires the debtor, you know, to notify of any changes in, in location and location of the collateral, notice of changes of their address, et cetera. If it's not in there, do visit with your counsel to see if you can get those things included. Again, it may not prevent that hole from being created. It may not resolve a hole if it is created, but it is something that you can do to help give you an additional claim for relief or remedy um, and maybe give you a breach of contract cause of action that may help you under your particular circumstances. So those are the first couple of things, Elizabeth, that I wanted to kind of mention. So along those lines, there are other certain changes in addition to the ones you were talking about that can occur after the financing statement is filed that may not require, and I say may, may not require an amendment or other filing to be made with regard to such changes in order for the financing statement to continue to be effective. But then other changes, such as changes in the name of the location of the debtor, may be considered, quote unquote, seriously misleading, which is a term of art that is important in the Article 9 realm. And that may require further action of the secured creditor in order for the UCC filing to continue to be effective. So if a name is deemed seriously seriously misleading under Article 9, or if a search of the debtor's name, for example, would not disclose the UCC as filed, then that security interest may only continue for four months from the date the name became misleading. And a creditor must file an amendment within those four months of the change to continue its perfection. So otherwise, if it's filed outside that zone, Elizabeth, like you were talking about, then that would have a new perfection date, new priority start date. It wouldn't be the continuation of the old date that you have a new start date from the time outside of the four-month window that you filed that, that correction, for example, or amendment. And so file when the name changes as soon as you know. And we haven't said this yet, but I think it goes without saying with all of these deadline-specific uh, thoughts and requirements, do make sure you have a good calendaring system. You know, from the moment you close or the moment you book a loan or the moment you put a transaction down, do go ahead and make sure you have a sufficient method of notifying yourself well in advance. And if you don't know all the deadlines, then do make sure you have the right person helping advise with regard to each transaction when these things can kind of happen. So take all what I just said and then compare that to a change in location of the collateral. So we're talking about serious and misleading, some of the other uh, changes that Elizabeth mentioned. Now we're going to talk about a change in location of collateral generally. And I do mean generally that may not affect the perfection of a security interest unless a change in location changes the law governing perfection. Now we may have to go into a different set of considerations if that becomes the case. And we'll go into a little bit more of that in our next discussion. So on the UCC form itself, there are some great instructions to review. At least this is something I find really helpful when filing a UCC. And being sure to satisfy the law and those instructions can really, really be helpful. So I work in a lot of different states or advise folks in, in different states as permissible. And when I do that, I will go pull, you know, of course, I got my Texas UCC in front of me and my Article 9, I should say. I got my Texas Article 9. I know what those uh, charts look like and I know what those um, guidance looks like. And we have really great forms here in Texas on the UCC side. 
But in looking at other states outside of Texas, not all of them have the same kind of instructions that come along with that UCC form that's been approved for that state. So if you find that you're in a state that doesn't have some instructions attached to the UCC-1 or on the amendments or on the continuation statements, not that it would be um, binding on your state, but do go pull those Texas ones or find another state that has some helpful guidance that you can pull from, from the Secretary of State file or wherever else it may be held in your state. And do go look at those. If nothing else, it gives you considerations to look at. So by way of quick example, on the UCC-1 instructions that currently exist in Texas, it'll you know break down what it means to have a debtor name and how you name that debtor. It'll talk about the organization debtor name, the individual debtor name, how to enter it, how to include it, where to place it. It'll tell you what goes in each box um, and where and how it should be stated. And if you need more room, what to do in the event of that circumstance. It'll also tell you if you have additional debtors' names to include or additional secured parties' names to include. If you need more space for your collateral description, it'll kind of tell you what to do there too, because that often is the case for me that I can't use the small box um, that may be provided. I need to probably do a C Exhibit A and attach that Exhibit A to that back of that uh, filing. Likewise, with regard to real estate records, a lot of people are really confused, especially if you have property that doesn't have an easy mailing address. Um, and maybe you're taking a security interest in certain personal property and or fixtures that are made part of certain real property. Hopefully your state has really good instructions with its financing statements on how you identify those properties and what are some really good ways to do that. If not, you know, do pull some other uh, instructions to see what you can do and, of course, get counsel uh, for any kind of legal advice you may need. So having said that, I find that these sorts of forms are really helpful. At, don't rely upon old forms. Always make sure you're grabbing the most recent form in case there are changes. So that's something that I've always found incredibly helpful, even in my practice. And even if it relates to things that I just have memorized, I always just have it in front of me as a cheat sheet because it takes two seconds to confirm yourself if whenever there's doubt you want to confirm. So kind of before leaving this discussion, though, one of the other things that I mentioned, and, I, and I'm a little out of order on this, but when I talked about seriously misleading before, some of those uh, seriously misleading type concepts can come up with certain kinds of debtors in particular. So trust, for example, Elizabeth, I have found um, people really struggle with, and they struggle with it for various reasons. Um, and often for me and my experience, none of your experience is the same. It's because trust agreements aren't always written um, in a way that's clear. They weren't written consistently. Different lawyers have different forms. Different persons use different uh, ways to develop a trust agreement. And sometimes the, the borrower slash debtor doesn't give you the full trust agreement to review. So it may be difficult to determine the name of a trust. So also a trust for another complicating reason, a trust may be considered an individual or an entity depending upon state law. And to me, it's kind of somewhere really in between. And there may be additional guidance in certain states depending upon whether that trust is considered a registered organization or whether it's not considered a registered organization. And that can affect the naming uh, of that particular trust in the UCC. And kind of one kind of final tip to round that out um, so if you have gotten pretty conversant or clear, let's say you know what the name of the trust is, you're confident in that regard, you know how to name that um, trust, for example, in your, in your deed of trust or your mortgage instrument, and how you're going to put them in the acknowledgement, how you're going to put them in that signature block, I'll call it, that doesn't always dictate how it's written in the UCC financing statement. So do make sure you're aware of all the different ways a trust instrument may need to be named in order for it to be um, effective with regard to your interest in that particular collateral being pledged by that person as a debtor, by that trust as a debtor, I should say. So Elizabeth, those are some of the things that immediately come to mind about some complicating factors. And again, when I talk about seriously misleading, one of the biggest challenges I talk about is in the trust area. 
So hopefully that gives some folks some general guidance on things to consider is Jen, again, is just a primer on some of these issues to explore further with their in-house team or their outside counsel. Yeah, Stephanie, that's great. And I did also um, want to point out just one thing that I feel like, you know, is good for people to to remember is that even, even if your documents do contain the kind of requirement to give notice to the lender or the creditor, you'll always want to make sure that you've kind of spoken with everyone in your organization that may really be impacted by those kinds of post-closing changes. Um, for, for example, you know, it'd be very easy for somebody to call um, an, the branch office or call a customer service number and say, you know, well, hey, I've moved or I've gotten married and changed my name for them to go to the billing system, update that information, and then just kind of carry on without realizing that there's some other things that need to happen as part of that. So they say, always just make sure everybody's tuned in to any of these kind of post-closing changes and why they may be very important. So, and you know, who you need to talk to in those situations. You know, Elizabeth, that is really a great tip because coordination, whether your your company or your bank or your lending institution is really small or really big, that coordination between the reception or the person who takes that information and the loan officer and whoever else is involved is critical because the borrower or the debtor may call one person and say, oh, I've changed. Or for example, something simple like, you know, let's say a loan statement gets returned back to you as undeliverable address change. That should be something that kind of tips the team off that, oh, gosh, we might need to do something now different. We might need to be updating some of our filings or follow up with them to say, hey, did you move? And not that you want to default them out because I wouldn't suggest that. It's more about just making sure you continue your lane and interest as you intended to. And so that coordination that you're kind of describing is really, really critical. And we'll talk about some of that coordination and why it really matters, especially when it comes to the issues we'll discuss next time under the statutory liens we were talking about earlier, as well as importantly, the Food Security Act, which is one of those laws, federal laws, that can also, like the state statutory liens, can also impact the priority type discussions we're having. Stephanie, that's great advice. And I thank you so much for giving you know everyone this advice today and talking through these issues that everybody has coming up. Um, We want to thank everyone for joining us in Advancing Agriculture, Legal Insight for the Ag Finance Industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. We've been your hosts, Stephanie Kaiser and Elizabeth Benefield. Please look for future episodes, including the second installment of Article 9 Challenges, where we will also cover the Food Security Act. We hope you can join us. 